0: Uh, it's good to be here, and uh, it's good to be in church. Seems like it's been forever since I've been in church. Um, at the beginning of the year, I was the chaplain for Boise State's baseball team, and so I was doing chapels on Sunday morning while we were still had baseball, and so I was missing church, and then COVID came, and we missed church, and so here we are, folks. I'm thankful to Brian for the opportunity to be here and to share today. Uh, when he called me, I thought, man, you must be at the bottom of your list. you got the old man. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, we'll have a good time. I'm really uh, intrigued by what has happened this summer as you've looked at the book of John. John's a great book and some great lessons in that book. John, what was John's occupation before Jesus found him? He was a fisherman, right? He and his brother were fishermen. Uh, John was a member of the big three. He was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. You know, I'd like to talk to John. I'd like to find out, John, tell me a little bit about you and your brother. How did you get the term sons of thunder? What was it that you had to do? Because it probably was not just one thing. In order to be called the sons of thunder, there must have been more than one thing that he and his brother were involved in—some kind of shenanigans. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they had, uh, maybe they had leather that they wore, and they had camels with stripes on them. I—I I don't know, racing stripes. I—I I don't know. But John, what what did you do to be called sons of thunder? That would have been interesting. And when we think about John, we think. We find him, the only apostle, at the cross when Jesus is crucified. It's John to whom Jesus says, as he points to his mother, Mary, behold your son, John, behold your mother. In other words, John, you are now to take care of my mother. When John wrote his book, one of the reasons that he wrote his book is that he did not want us to miss that Jesus is the Son of God. That's one of his preeminent things in the book, and we'll look at some of that uh, today as well. My assignment this week is chapter 13. There's a lot in the chapter, some of which we will cover, some we won't. I'd love to teach on it all, but you don't want to be here that long. So let's pray, and then we'll begin to get into it. Father, we thank you so much for John, for your word. And I just pray this morning that it would speak to us. Thank you for this opportunity, and we just pray that you would be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's begin with the very first verse of John Chapter 13 reads this way, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Now, if you're following in your scripture, you may have a footnote that says that he loved it. He now showed them the full extent of his love. You know, when I was reading the chapter and beginning to uh, prepare for this, uh, as I read the first chap, the first verse, it just there was something in it just jumped out at me that never had before. I know you have that same experience where you read scripture and at one time it speaks to you, at another time, yeah, sort of whatever kind of things, but something just sort of came off the page at me that I had not seen before. It was this. He now showed them the full extent of his love. What do you mean now, John? They've been with you for three years. You've been with him. You haven't noticed and you haven't seen and you haven't felt the full extent of his love, up till now. Now, it says John says, and now, he showed them the full extent of his love. And so, in John's mind, as John writes this for us to read and to react to, in John's mind, what is about to follow in the verses that are, we look at next is a demonstration how much Jesus loved them. You know, it's interesting, as an author, or as the author, John doesn't feel it's necessary when he wrote his book to tell us that he's the author. He doesn't say anywhere, if you remember, when the book starts, it just starts in the Word. It starts with the Word, right? The Word became flesh, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Immediately, John jumps in, and he doesn't begin by saying, well, this is John, and I, and I was with Jesus for a long time. So I'd like to tell you the story that, uh, from my point of view here. No, he wants us to understand immediately that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. So at the very beginning of the book, he starts that way. He sets it up, and then he begins to go on. But it is in this book, for the very first time, that John refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. The disciple who Jesus loved. And it's actually in this chapter, in today's assignment, today's chapter, Chapter 13 is the first time that John does that. And he does it four more times before the book is finished. He says that he is the disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't love the other disciples. John, we know, was a part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. But even among the inner circle, John wants us to know, I had a very special relationship with Jesus. So I want you to listen very carefully to what it is that I have to say. You know, as you've been going through this summer the book of John, John has been laying out foundational truths about Jesus uh, that he's been teaching in the last several chapters, in fact, that you've looked at. So as a review, let me just go over some of them again and remind you of them. In chapter 8, John establishes his identity as the I, with the I am statements. And he also establishes the identity of the enemy. But he has the I am statements. In chapter 9, John establishes his power over the physical world by healing the man that was born blind. You know, it's very interesting. In the book of John, John records seven of Jesus' miracles. But John never refers to them as miracles. He never refers to them as miracles. He refers to them, he calls them signs. He calls them signs. See, John doesn't want us to get caught up with the concept of miracle. He wants you to understand that what Jesus did, yes, in fact, it was a miracle. And yes, in fact, it did demonstrate power. But it also demonstrated the key point that John wants us to get out of this entire book. Jesus is the son of God. He is the Messiah. Messiah. Every one of these miracles are signs that point to who Jesus is. And that's what John wants us to get. In fact, in the 20th chapter of John, verse 31, it says this, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name john wants us to know the reason for this book so that you know that jesus is the messiah no questions asked no questions asked in chapter 10 he establishes his true intentions jesus establishes his true intentions for us and the true intentions of the enemy verse 10 in chapter 10 in chapter 11 he establishes his power over the spiritual realm and the afterlife with the raising of Lazarus. And in chapter 12, as you had last week, as Pastor Brian led last week, it shows Jesus living out these truths by his actions, being anointed by Mary, and the triumphal entry. And he says how he will forever establish his authority by dying, rising from the dead, defeating Satan, and establishing the covenant of grace. Chapter 13 puts the final brick in this foundation that you've been building this entire summer. Chapter 13 puts this brick in. The brick is this, that Jesus leads by example of how we are supposed to live out these truths in our lives. And that is... By serving. By serving. That's the final brick in this foundation. Everything that we have learned about who Jesus is and the truths that are there for us, these are lived out in our lives. These are to be lived out in our lives by serving. And that is the final brick. You know, the setting of this chapter is often referred to as the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. When Pastor Brian called me a few weeks ago and asked if I'd be available to to uh, be with you today, and then he told me what chapter was my assignment. You know, it's uh, Brian and I go. Brian and I served together. In case some of you, if you do not know, but Brian and I served together on the staff at Cloverdale Church for many years together. So we have a very Good banter back and forth. And so he said, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but here's what you're preaching on. And as I began to read again and to look at that and think about this, the Lord's Supper and what went on during this time, this Last Supper, it brought back some really vivid memories. At my age, I have more memories than ideas. But as I reflected, one of them particularly In the late 70s, at the Tiger Church of God in Oregon, where I was attending, uh, we did a very poignant drama about the Last Supper, and it was done in the round, uh, where the stage was in the middle and all the chairs were around it. All the disciples were there, and Jesus, and we were all reclining at the table, because that's the way they ate. They leaned on one arm and, and ate. That's. I, I don't know if I... Probably that's a good diet thing for me. I, I'm not that comfortable just leaning on one arm for the arm. But we were there, and during the drama, each one of the disciples got up and talked about who he was, how he came to be involved with Jesus, and the importance of this... Last Supper with Jesus. I had been asked to play Judas. So as, when the director asked me to consider that, after I, when Brian and I were talking, after I got off the phone with Brian, some of my thoughts ran back to the thoughts that I processed when I made that decision. Very poignant. You know, it's very interesting, John's recollection or John's recounting the story. Because John's recount of the story is a little different than the other, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's the only gospel that says Jesus washed the disciples' feet. John is the only gospel to not describe the communion that was taken. All four Gospels describe Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. Let me read for you, beginning at verse 2 through verse 17 of chapter 13. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, in, Well, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, Jesus replied, A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash, except for the feet, to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you, for Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I'm doing? You call me teacher and Lord? And you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things... God will bless them. God will bless you, excuse me, for doing them. Here he is, Jesus, the I am. The one who demonstrated power over the physical world when he healed the blind man. The one who's come to give life, chapter ten. The one who demonstrated power over the spiritual realms and death by raising Lazarus the one who lived out all of these truths, and now here he comes and he says, I am all of this, but in case you missed it, let me show you how much I really love you by washing your feet. You know, it's, it's really hard to put ourselves back into that time and understand exactly the dynamic that was happening here at this time. Uh, Most of us didn't live in the Middle East. I've been there several times on business and another life, but it's dusty and dirty. And we know that one of the traditions was when you went to visit someone's home, that their servant would come out and he would wash your feet. That was what they did because your feet would be dirty. Jesus offered to wash their feet. Think about what's going on here now. They're reclining around the table. Jesus takes a towel. He takes off his outer garment. He takes a towel, and he puts the towel around his waist. And then he takes pitcher, and I didn't put any water in here because I didn't want to spill it. He takes a pitcher and he pours water into the basin and then he proceeds around the table to each one of them and washes Wait a minute. This is the great I am. This is the one who conquered death. This is the one who has the power over the physical to make a man be able to see. He's on his knees. Watching. It took a little bit of time, obviously. There were 12 of them. Because Judas was still there. There were 12 of them, so it took a little time, obviously, For Jesus to go around the table and to wash their feet. I just can't imagine what your thoughts would have been. What the atmosphere would have been like. There was something very interesting about this. You realize in this story, when the disciples came to this room, this was a rented room, a borrowed room, so, the, obviously, the owner was not there to wash their feet when they got there. But do you notice from the story, the disciples didn't offer to wash each other's feet. The disciples didn't really see themselves as servants of each other. If they had, they would have washed each other's feet. But they did not. Jesus says, "Now you should wash one another's feet. Jesus has to tell them. You need to wash each other's feet. I have set an example for you. You should do as I have done for you. Let's pick up the story now in verse 18. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this fulfills the scripture that says, The one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now Jesus was really troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, Who is he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. John wants to make sure we understand the accuracy of his story. For in verse 23, he says, The disciple who loved Jesus was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Depending on which translation you may be reading, it may say that he was reclining and had his head on Jesus' breast. Even Peter acknowledged that that John had a special role with Jesus. John was next to Jesus at the table. Peter, obviously, was on the other side of John. And when Peter wanted to know the answer to the question, instead of him saying it and saying it loud enough so Jesus could hear him, he didn't necessarily want everybody else and yet he knew, let John ask the question, so he says to John, ask him who he's talking about. Ask him who he's talking. John wants us to know, hey, this is really a true story, guys, and I was a part in the middle of this, so listen up. The truth about Judas was that Judas was listening to the wrong voice. In the 27th verse, it says, When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him, and then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. So Judas left at once going out into the night. Judas must have been relatively close to Jesus because when he, Jesus said this some of the disciples heard but they when Judas got up and left it was not seemingly a big deal to them. They thought he had something to do because he was their treasurer. But Jesus went on and said, hurry and do what you're going to do. Then Jesus knew that Judas was motivated by greed. If you remember back to chapter 12, the lesson you had in chapter 12, Judas was a thief. He had a problem with greed and money, and he was the treasurer of the group. That was his weakness. You know, Satan attacks us where we are weak. Satan does not attack us where we're strong. Satan attacks us where we are weak. He attacked Judas where Judas was weak. money. He attacked Judas where Judas was weak, not where he was strong. You see, in our own way, in our own weaknesses that we have, because that's the way Satan works, to attack us where we are weak, in our own way, in our own weaknesses, we are, in a way, we are Judas, or at the very least, a potential Judas. Verse 30 says, he went out, and it was night. You could say this is a classic example of the theme of light and dark, of good and evil, which culminates with this statement. Let's pick up the narrative again in verse 31. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He said, I- I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. See, Jesus gives out instructions on how we are to live out the truth of the gospel as long as we're living here on earth. In John 13, 34, and 5, which we just read, Jesus says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. This is, <laughs> I love this. You got to, uh, I just put yourself into this position. Think about these disciples for a minute. Jesus says to them, I'm now, I give you a new commandment. They should have got nothing left. Nobody gave commandments, those were all given to Moses. There weren't any more commandments. Now I give you a new commandment love one another, to which they said, that's not new, Jesus. That's not new. Leviticus, the scroll of Leviticus, they didn't have chapters and verses then, 1918. But the scroll of Leviticus, Jesus, already says that. That's not new, to which Jesus would have said, I'm not through. I'm not through. You see, the scroll of Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself that means that your standard for love is your personal standard the way you see yourself the way you treat yourself is the way you have committed then if you're in law if you're in line with keeping the law in Leviticus this is the way you treat others but it's limited to your law i'm not through guys this is the new law I've just raised the bar. It's no longer treat others like as you love yourself. Now, I want you to love each other as I have loved you and just demonstrated my love for you by serving. That's now the standard. That's now the standard. And it's your love for one another that will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not because you've been with me for three years. Not because you know the law. It's because of your humbling yourselves in a relationship with me that allows you to humbly serve. gotcha. They didn't come into that room serving each other or they would have washed each other's feet. They didn't think of being servants to each other. That's not how they saw themselves. Jesus said, the way you demonstrate your love, my love through you is by serving. Verses 37 and 38, the truth of Peter comes out that he would fall short. Peter would fall short. The 38th verse reads this way. John answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even knew me. Think about this. Judas and Peter. When we hear the name Judas, we don't normally have a very positive thought. If someone calls you a Judas, doesn't make you smile. None of us named our kids Judas. We don't have the same reaction when we hear the word Peter, though. Peter doesn't give us a negative feeling when we hear the term, when we hear the name. Uh, I grew up with kids whose names were Peter, Peter, and Judas. They were both pretty blind. They both listened to the wrong voice. They both betrayed Jesus. Judas was motivated by greed. Peter was motivated by pride. They both had their feet washed by Jesus. Jesus served both of them. Jesus died for both of them. When it came to living out the truths that Jesus was teaching or had been teaching them, when it came to beginning to live those out, they weren't different at first. But their stories ended differently. Why? Peter trusted Jesus to overpower his mistakes. Judas didn't. Judas' biggest mistake was not betraying Jesus. Judas' biggest mistake was not making it till Sunday. Peter let Jesus conquer his guilt by raising on the third day. Judas tried to settle his guilt by himself on Saturday. How many times do we try to settle our own guilt? Peter let Jesus conquer his guilt. See, Jesus' death covers all sin. Peter's sin, Judah's sin, my sin, your sin. But you have to accept it. See, the gift of salvation is a gift. But a gift is not a gift until it's opened. We have to accept it. We have to accept it. There's no greater gift than God's salvation. John 13:17 said says, "Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them." We know them now. A lack of knowledge is not our excuse. If we want God to bless us, it will be by doing them. By doing them. By living this out. And the way we live it out as the way Jesus showed them is by serving. in An attitude of servanthood. Our final thought for today. Jesus loves all the disciples. He loved all of them, not just John. So, will you do the things that he taught us to do? Does your life show that you are his disciple? Is the paradigm in which you view life, the paradigm through which you process life, is that paradigm paradigm of a servant? that's what Jesus said, will tell other people. That will be the witness that we are his disciples. The witness is how we serve. The way we serve, the implication is it will be different. Think of Jesus and the way he served. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge for us this morning. To view life, to view everyone we see that we are their servant. The way that we can serve you, because it's how we serve, that will tell people that we do have a relationship. Continue to challenge us, I pray, as we close.